Good evening. In the news tonight, Australia's raging wildfires have sparked the ire of tens of thousands of climate protesters. Bernie Sanders continues to surge in advance of tomorrow night's big presidential debate, the last debate before the February 3rd Iowa caucuses. And Governor Andrew Cuomo has signed a bill which enables adoptees to receive a certified copy of their original birth certificates at age 18. With these and other stories, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, New York's progressive newspaper now in its 20th year of publishing. Beginning with international news, tens of thousands of Australians took to the streets Friday to denounce their government's handling of unprecedented summer wildfires. The fires continued to rage across the heat-ravaged island continent. Protesters demanded that the government of Conservative Prime Minister Scott Morrison provide more funding for firefighters who often work as volunteers. Australians also called for the government to break its close ties to that country's coal industry, prioritize renewable energy development, and a just transition for affected fossil fuel workers. Prime Minister Morrison slammed his critics, replying, quote, We don't want job-destroying, economy-destroying, economy-wrecking targets and goals. The fires, which have consumed an area the size of West Virginia, have killed 27 people, and while it's impossible to determine exactly how many animals have died, some put the number at one billion. Australia's media, much of which is controlled by right-wing press baron Rupert Murdoch, has sought to deflect public anger by blaming the wildfire crisis on arsonists instead of climate change. Australia's summer dry season is only half over. In France, following five weeks of strikes and protests by French public sector workers, Prime Minister Edouard Philippe announced Saturday that the government would withdraw plans to raise the retirement age for full pension benefits by two years to 64. This in order to review the financial health of the country's pension system later this spring. The concession came as tens of thousands of French workers marched through Paris over the weekend, intermittently clashing with police. Eric Coquerel, a representative in Parliament and a leading voice in the France Unbowed Party, told French television, quote, we've got to continue to mobilize until they pull the whole plan pure and simple. Turning to national headlines, here in the United States, six leading Democratic presidential contenders will take the stage tomorrow night in Des Moines, Iowa. It's the last presidential debate before the first in the nation Iowa caucuses on February 3rd. The debate will take place as Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders continues to surge in the polls and garner key endorsements. Fellow progressive Elizabeth Warren is running close behind. Polls released last week had Sanders in first place in the early voting states of Iowa and New Hampshire, as well as California, the largest of 17 states that will vote on Super Tuesday on March 3rd. Sanders also received endorsements from the Sunrise Movement, a youth climate group that has popularized the Green New Deal, the Dream Defenders, a millennial-led civil rights group founded in the aftermath of the 2013 shooting of Trayvon Martin, and from SEIU Local 1984 in New Hampshire. The 10,000-member local bucked its national parent, which has remained neutral in the race. We will have more from on the ground in Iowa after the break. The U.S. Senator from New Jersey, Democrat Cory Booker, dropped out of the presidential race today. He struggled in polling and fundraising since launching his bid last February and was unable to hit 5% support in a single qualifying poll required to make it on the January debate stage. 
Now the most diverse field in history has only three remaining people of color, businessman Andrew Yang, Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, and former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, none of whom qualified for Tuesday's debate. In other news, Texas will no longer accept the resettlement of new refugees, becoming the first state to do so, Governor Greg Abbott announced on Friday. Since 2002, Texas has taken in over 88,000 refugees, more than any state except California. Abbott's move was made possible by a recent Trump administration order that allows states to opt out of the federal refugee resettlement program. Ali al-Sudani, a senior vice president of Interfaith Ministries for Greater Houston, told The Guardian, quote, It's very disappointing and very sad news, and honestly, this is not the Texas that I know. Turning to local news, a water main break flooded streets on Manhattan's Upper West Side near Lincoln Center and hampered subway service during the morning rush hour. The flooding was first reported around 5 a.m. near Broadway and West 62nd Street. The water spread for blocks and was several inches deep in places. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority reported delays on multiple subway lines. As the Harvey Weinstein trial gets underway, a group of several dozen women made their point Friday outside the lower Manhattan courthouse where the former Hollywood mogul faces multiple charges of sexual assault. They performed a choreographed dance called The Rapist Is You that was first performed during protest in Chile this fall. Here is an excerpt. The women subsequently traveled on the subway to Trump Tower where they gave a repeat performance in honor of President Donald Trump, who has been accused of sexual assault by more than two dozen women. In other news, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a bill which enables adoptees to receive a certified copy of their original or pre-adoption birth certificates once they turn 18 years old. The new law helps ensure that all adult New York adoptees will have the same right to information about their birth and biological parents. This law goes into effect on January 15, 2020. Governor Cuomo has also joined a chorus of voices calling for rolling back a historic bail reform law that passed the legislature and only went into effect two weeks ago. We will be discussing this more in the second half of the show, more after the break. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing Bob Dylan, The Times They Are Changing. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper, now in its 20th year of publishing. I'm John Tarleton, the Indy's editor-in-chief. We now turn to Iowa, where six leading Democratic presidential contenders will take the stage tomorrow night in Des Moines. It's the last presidential debate before the first in the nation Iowa caucuses on February 3rd. The de- the debate will take place as Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders continues to surge in the polls and garner key endorsements. Fellow progressive Elizabeth Warren is running close behind. For the Democrats, the winner of the last four contested Iowa caucuses has gone on to win the party's presidential nomination. Polls released last week had Sanders in first place in both Iowa and New Hampshire, which 
which votes next after Iowa, as well as in California, the largest of 17 states that will vote on Super Tuesday on March 3rd. Sanders also received endorsements last week from the Sunrise Movement, a youth climate group that has popularized the Green New Deal, the Dream, Def- the Dream Defenders, a millennial-led civil rights group founded in the aftermath of the 2013 shooting of Trayvon Martin, and from SEIU Local 1984 in New Hampshire with 10,000 members. The Sanders campaign has also mobilized thousands of volunteers to canvas door-to-door in Iowa and other key early voting states. Joining us this evening to give us more of a sense of what is happening on the ground in Iowa is McNair Scott. McNair is the, is the co-owner of Star Bar, a social justice-oriented performance space and watering hole in Bushwick, Brooklyn. McNair arrived in Cedar, Ap- Cedar Rapids, Iowa's second largest city, at the beginning of January and plans to canvas door-to-door for Senator Sanders through February 3rd. McNair, welcome to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent. Hey, John. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. It's great to have you on the show. So here we are three weeks from uh, tonight. Iowa Iowa Democrats will caucus and set their trajectory for the rest of the presidential primary contest. It's hard Mm -hmm. to argue that one small, mostly white state in the middle of the country should have such an outsized role, but that's where we are. So can you give us a sense of what it's like to be on the ground out there, what the buzz is? And in terms of Iowans being engaged with the caucuses and the candidates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy happy to talk about it. I uh I came here about a week ago and it's been it's been pretty amazing. I've just been knocking on doors. Um you know, the campaign buzz is great. The volunteer situation is amazing, the field field organizers are really jazzed. It's it's I mean it's pretty fun working on a campaign that's surging. And then in terms of like knocking on doors and interacting with folks from Iowa, it's it's I mean, everyone's real sweet. I, this, I, it's called Iowa Nights, and it's a it's a real thing. And then people people who I meet at the door, like I've had a lot of Bernie supporters, but there's there's a huge amount of undecided voters who, for a whole number of reasons, are still undecided. I mean, apparently there's like a poll came out, 58 percent of people are still undecided. So there's a lot of work to be done. Yes, uh, can you take us through a day of canvassing? Uh, when do you go out? What exactly do you do? And uh, if you could elaborate on some of the responses you're getting from the residents of uh, Cedar Rapids, which for our uh, listeners here in New York is the second largest city in Iowa with about 130,000 residents. Yeah, sure. Um, we get up. I got a crew of people out here, a couple of friends, some people we've met along the way. Um, we go to the canvassing office and there's an app where you, you kind of get your turf basically shows you the map of what doors you're going to knock on. And then you just go up these random doors in Iowa um, and you, you have a name and you know the gender and you know the age of the person. And, and in theory, they're all supposed to be Democrats or independents. Um, I've definitely got some Trump voters, but generally that's the case. It's uh, Democrats or independents. And you knock on the door and you tell them what you're there for. Um, and it's a whole variety of responses. I've got a lot of folks who are interested in Bernie. And then the undecided folks, they oftentimes their main their main thing is they, they might like Bernie, they might like someone else, but their main in my experience, the main thing that they care about is beating Trump. Right. Uh, electability. And what do you find to be uh, some of the most effective lines of arguments for talking to uh, voters like this? Around the electability issue, I mean, basically – uh, it's different for what people whose 
candidate they like the most. But, I mean, I think it's just a really clean and clear um, – you can make a clear and compelling story that Bernie is the most likely to win. You know, he's got the biggest volunteer army. He has the most uh, money coming in from small small donors, no, no PACs and no big corporate donations. Uh, you can trust him. Basically, you know, and that he's that he's doing well in the polls and he's surging is also very compelling to people, um, you know. And then there's also the, you know, a lot of people still kind of buy into the safe bet, of the mainstream candidates like Joe Biden or or Mayor Pete. And so you can talk about how the safe bet just hasn't won. You know, John Kerry didn't want out win. Al Gore didn't win. Hillary Clinton didn't win. And you also have to win the Rust Belt states and. You know, Joe Biden did NAFTA and he took us to war in Iraq. So you can you couldn't really talk people in like I, I was had a lot of success talking to folks around those issues. Right. And, and um, in the in the last day or so, there's been a, a controversy that's flared up in terms of how the Sanders uh, canvassers uh, are or, or are not addressing uh, supporters of Senator Elizabeth Warren and uh, whether um uh, well, anyway, can you can you speak to that? Sure, I could speak to that, and I also could tell you kind of like my the best day I had so far. But yeah, uh, the the first part to answer that first question. I mean, I met Warren supporters at the door, and I'm happy to see them. You know, I'm it's high time we had a woman uh, in at the you know as a president for sure. Um, and most of the time that I meet Warren supporters, they're also Bernie supporters. They just are on the side of Warren. So. I don't know what the campaigns are doing right now. The folks I've met at the door, we all have the same, you know, similar progressive agendas, and we've picked our champion. I have my reasons why I think um, Bernie is the better choice, but at the at the end of the day, I feel very aligned with all the folks I've met who are Warren supporters. Mm. And uh, uh, you plan to be out there all the way through February third? Is it is it uh, yeah, cold? Yes, so it's cold. I'm bundled up, you know, you, you take some breaks when you're knocking doors. But, you know, I think I wasn't going to only be out here a day. And then I've, you had, you know, the story is that Bernie lost here in some precincts by just a couple couple people, by a couple votes. So it feels like every time you talk to someone, you get, get them to commit to caucus for Bernie. It's like one of those rare movement moments where you feel like the little bit that you can put into something has a really big impact. And you feel that. So I went into this. Uh, this this neighborhood it was all trailer homes, and I had three people in a row. Well, two, three people in a row who were ready to caucus for Bernie, and the second two weren't even going to caucus. They were only going to vote in the general, and they're leaning towards Biden. At the end of about 45 minutes, they were ready to go with Bernie, and I was able to put a like a Bernie lawn sign on their front lawn, and it felt amazing. And these are neighbors in a small community who are then going to talk to their other neighbors and get people out and. You know, you get a little taste of that at this moment, and I was just like, "That's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick around to the end." Mm. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. So um, we'll have to uh, exit here in a second. But uh, is there uh, any way people can find out more information if they wanted to do what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, if folks can come to come to Iowa, it's super rewarding, amazing work. Uh, BernieSanders.com/Iowa is the way to go. It also had, you have the ability in New York to also, uh, you know, phone bank and call folks here. And everyone's ready to talk. Everyone's ready to chat. It's like really uh, a great way to talk to people about this. 
All righty. Well, thank you, McNair, for joining us from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, we look oh, forward cool. to Thank you, John. Yes. All right. Stay warm out there. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Good night. Okay. So after the break, we will talk about New York's new bail reform law and the controversy that has sprung up around it. By John Lennon. This is the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper for 20 years. I'm the editor, the Indies editor-in-chief, John Tarleton. 2018's blue wave election flipped control of New York State Senate from the Republicans to progressive Democrats, leaving the GOP and its backers without any power base in Albany. Well, elections have consequences, and in 2019, the legislature passed not only sweeping rent law reforms, but a historic bail law reform that ended cash bail for most, though not all, criminal charges. The new law went into effect on January 1, 2020, and has has quickly come under fierce attack from prosecutors, police unions, and right-wing tabloids like the New York Post and Daily News, with their screaming headlines that portray the new law as unleashing a wave of criminals on society. Joining us tonight to address the campaign against the new bail law is Katie Schaefer, Executive Director of the Center for Community Alternatives, one of the member groups of the Free New York Coalition that fought last year for bail reform. Katie, thank you for joining us tonight on WBAI Evening News. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You bet. Um, So, before we discuss this, the scare, pain, the scare campaign going on around New York State's new bail uh, reform law, can you take us back to why bail reform was passed last year by the leg- legislature and signed into law by Governor Cuomo? Why was this uh, such an urgent priority? Absolutely. So prior to the passage of bail reform, there were over 25,000 New Yorkers in jail on any given day, and the vast majority, nearly 70 percent, were there pre-trial. This means that they had not been convicted of anything, but they were there overwhelmingly because they could not afford bail. And this was a system that, on its most basic level, violated the presumption of innocence, uh, that it, uh, in, in particular, criminalized poverty, that it treated people who could not afford to buy their freedom to pay bail. It treated them as as guilty until they could prove otherwise. Uh, it's a system that targeted uh, communities of color. It's a system that devastated families and communities, that it only takes a day, a week, a month in jail on bail you cannot afford to lose your job, to lose your housing, uh, to be able to be unable to pick up your children in school. And then it's also a system that led 
to unjust outcomes, that when people are incarcerated pretrial, they are far more likely to take guilty pleas, whether or not they've done the harm they are accused of. Uh, and so uh, the system of pretrial detention and of money bail was very appealing to prosecutors because it allowed for sort of assembly line convictions. Uh, but that is not in the interest of justice in our system. Uh, and so it was for these reasons for the crisis of mass jailing, particularly for highly impacted uh, black and brown and low income communities uh, that uh, advocates uh, and faith leaders uh, and community members across New York State fought for bail reform legislation that was passed in April. Right. And can you elaborate a little bit more on why the previous cash bail system uh, was so destabilizing for families and communities? Absolutely. Um, so if you can imagine being arrested and if you work a shift job, it only takes a day or two in jail before you have lost your job. Once you've lost your job, it doesn't take very long uh, before you're unable to make a rent payment or a mortgage payment. Once you've lost housing, um, uh, that leads to a cascading series of consequences, not just for the individual, but for their, but for their family. There's also the question of caretaking. If the person who's now in jail on bail that cannot afford has young children or is a caretaker to an elderly relative, there's a question of who cares uh, for, those, for those people. Uh, if the person who cannot afford bail uh, is a college student, uh, they risk failing their classes and then losing their financial aid. Uh, if they have um, uh, medical or other health issues, uh, they don't have access to the doctors or to the health care they need. Uh, if there's somebody suffering from mental health crisis, we know that jail is a traumatizing experience, uh, and that exacerbates uh, whatever kind of mental health issues people need rather than supporting uh, treatment and care. And so for all of those reasons, it's destabilizing for the individual, it's destabilizing for their family, uh, but then also because of the ways that the criminal legal system has really targeted black and brown and low-income communities, that it is then destabilizing outward for whole communities. Okay. And what's your response to the anti-bail reform uh, voices who are pointing to examples perhaps selective examples, but uh, examples nonetheless of people being charged with a crime, being released without having to make bail, and then quickly being arrested again on another charge? So there are a couple of things that I would point out. One is that under New York's prior money bail system, this outcome could also have occurred. It just would have occurred specifically for people who have access to wealth. Uh, and so it was a system that uh, caused the poor to languish in jail and allowed people with wealth to buy their freedom. And so that is the issue that is addressed under the new bail reform. Um, I also point to uh, an article that just came out in the Syracuse Post Standard uh, that looked at who was released under uh, uh, the bail reform in, in the past week. And what they found is that uh, the vast majority of people who have been released uh, were released under the old system as well. They were just detained for one, two, three days. Uh, and so this is a, a, a system that is now, uh, the new bail reform is now eliminating these incredibly harmful short stays uh, mm -hmm. that, that people were experiencing. Okay. So we just have a couple of more minutes here. 
Uh, but uh, can you speak to um, the situation where you know the Republicans uh, lost control of the state Senate in the 2018 mid- midterms, and it was also a big loss for district attorneys and police groups that had long been able to thwart reforms at the state level. To what extent do you believe this campaign of fear is driven by anger over their loss of power and influence in the state government? And is there also something more they are angry about and lashing out about? You make a very good point. I think this is both about a political loss of power, but it's also very fundamentally about a loss of power within the system. One of the things that a uh, system of money bail and pretrial detention did for district attorneys was that it allowed for the easy and efficient coercion of plea deals, that when somebody is incarcerated pretrial, they are far more likely to take guilty pleas. And this allowed district attorneys uh, to resolve cases very quickly. Now, whether they resolved those cases in the interest of justice is a different question. Uh, But money bail was a power play by district attorneys and the loss of uh, of that of that strategy um, as well as the new discovery reforms that require them to turn over evidence at the beginning of the case means that they do not hold all of the cards and all of the power in ways that they have previously okay and real quickly uh, uh, the free New York coalition is is you know fighting back against this fear campaign I know you'll have a press conference in uh, Albany later this week. But real quick, uh, for people who want to keep track of what's going on and what you all are doing, uh, where can they uh, find uh, information? Uh, So you can uh, look at the Twitters of of the organizations who have been leading on this work, Vocal New York, the New York Civil Liberties Union, the Center for Community Alternatives. Uh, You can also uh, sign up for the newsletter at any of those organizations. Uh, All of us are sharing information through through all of our public platforms, and we would be excited to have you advocate with us. Excellent. We'll leave it there. And Katie Schaefer uh, from the Center for Community Alternatives, thank you for joining us tonight on WBAI Evening News. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Good night. So that wraps it up for tonight on uh, WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent. You can find uh, The Independent. Uh, Our current issue is on the streets across New York City in news boxes, public libraries, bookstores, and other venues. You can also find us online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. And we'll be back uh, same time next week. Thank you for joining us.
has been compelled under California court order to consider amendments to its bylaws. Now, these bylaws protect the democratic governance system, key to our mission of promoting peace and justice through our broadcasts. The court order was initiated by Pacifica National Board members Donald Goldmacher from KPFA, Mansour Sabag from KPFK, and Bill Crozier from KPFT. Crozier was one of the board members who came and closed down WBAI on October 7th. However, in the opinion of a large majority of the Pacifica National Board, the proposed bylaws amendments are destructive, a slap in the face at all the activists who struggled for years to create a democratic governance structure for Pacifica. It would do away with our local station boards and replace them with the rubber stamp advisory boards that now dominate NPR stations. It would put Pacifica under the absolute control of six transitional directors appointed by those who filed the lawsuit. They would even have final say over all Pacifica broadcasts, including over WBAI. I'm Alex Steinberg, pro tem chair of the Pacifica National Board and member of WBAI's local station board. I urge all delegates and members to study these bylaws carefully and vote your conscience. This is WBAI New York. Amended and restated Pacifica bylaws amendments have been proposed and may now be found on the Foundation's website at www.pacifica.org for review and have been voted on by the